Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for March 2019. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my brand spanking new co-hosts, writer, academic and programmer Kirsten Stevens. Welcome, Kirsten. Hi, Mark. We're very, very pleased that you've come on board with us, and uh, you've got some big shoes to fill with Eloise, but I know that you're going to be able to um, fill them perfectly. And in our rotating third chair this month, we have writer, academic, um, and general superhero hero, uh, Liam Burke. Welcome, Liam. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, on today's show, we're going to be discussing the latest chapter in the MCU, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck's Captain Marvel in which Brie Larson banters with Samuel L. Jackson, flies into space and gets a cat, uh, while simultaneously discovering her mysterious past and stopping intergalactic genocide. Um, All in a day's work. Uh, After that, we'll then turn to Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, the adaptation of James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk. And then finally, we're going to look at the career of Guillermo del Toro, following on from Gabriela Munoz's excellent discussion in our great director section of the latest issues of Senses of Cinema. And we'll end, as always, on our recommendations for the month of March. And for patrons of Senses of Cinema this month, in the bonus, we're going to look at the film and TV that sustained us happily over the New Year's break. So let's now get things underway. Captain Marvel is the story of a woman we are first introduced to as Veers, played by Brie Larson, a soldier in a space war between the Kree and the Skrulls. She also happens to have amnesia, and after a series of events which send her crashing to Earth in the 1990s, Veers goes in search of her true identity, which is soon to be revealed as that of Carol Danvers, a fighter pilot believed dead. Carol's search for her own identity and her involvement in the battle between the Kree and the Skrulls drives her into a relationship with a um, peculiarly very young Nick Fury and introduces her to her own new identity, that of superhero Captain Marvel. Now, sadly, beyond the uh, predictable women-can't-be-doing-things type of responses, the film has attracted mixed reviews. We're going to try and figure out whether they're right or whether we're right, Uh, and I would suggest that we're right no matter what we say. (laughs) Um, Kirsten, how did you find Brie Larson and Captain Marvel? I actually really enjoyed this film and have been driven slightly mad by the reviews that I've read of this, Um, particularly ones where I keep finding these references to the idea that audiences have grown accustomed to female superheroes. I'm like, we've done two films. We're still quite limited. Um, And, of course, the inevitable uh, comparisons between Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, despite the many, many differences of the films, the plots, the universes. but I have to say, my first reaction was that I just genuinely enjoyed watching this film. Yeah. Liam, how did you find it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. I think I had strategically lowered my expectations because <laughs> I'm a bit over origin stories. Yeah. I like the characters, but I often find that the origin stories are the most tedious or perfunctory. Yeah. And I think what they did well here was to find ways to do the origin story, but kind of give us a slight variation on it. So you've already described how she was amnesiac. So she's kind of like a born identity type figure. And we discover her story with her, which makes the storytelling a little complicated. But at least it's not the paint by numbers, Doc Strange origin story. I think that works. The period setting as well, setting in the mid-90s, gives it a kind of a different texture, but also there's wonderful music and there's wonderful clothing and those kind of nice period details as well. And there's a few, I think, carefully handled uh, plot twists that are effective. So all those bring a kind of a, a variation. And also, you know, it's nice that this is the 
there were 21 films into the Marvel yeah. Universe and we finally have one that's not led by a white guy named Chris. <laughs> that's yeah. right. This is true. I mean, I, I confess I, you know, I think I've already gone on the record, not a fan of the, the superhero thing, although there are a couple that I really love. And I settled into this one and thought, yep, this is going to be another one of those crappy, boring, by-the-numbers things where I just I just go into the action coma. Like, I'm sick of you blowing stuff up and on and on and on. And for the first 30 minutes, totally out. This is garbage. And then it won me over. And, you know, you mentioned that the plot twists, some of them I didn't see coming because I was so – I'm so used to the formula – uh, and I'm like, all right, you're the dude that does this and you're the chick that does that. And, you know, I can see all of the markers. You're good on you, you talentless bunch of plonkers. <laughs> and then they tricked me. And at the point where you get surprised, where you feel really superior to a film, like, I'm totally smarter than this film. And then the film says, listen, dickhead, like, why don't you pay attention? You know, we aren't, you know, we aren't dumber than you. Um, that's when I, I'd like to be told that I'm not, that, that I'm stupid sometimes. Uh, by film, where I sort of ended up going along with it and ended up really loving it. I loved those final sequences. I loved the big battle sequence that almost literally just says, you know what, we're leaning into the comedy. This is just going to be fun. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that always kicks me out of those films is, you know, we're very, very serious, bang, crash, bang, crash, one line of witty banter, back to it, bang, crash. And this one's just like, you know what, why don't we just do the banter for the entire final section of the film? Loved it. Very impressed by it. Um, how did you feel, though? I, I do have a couple of things to say. Um, how do you feel about young Nick Fury? I, mean, I, I think they had to do it. I mean, how they do had you, to do it. Yeah. How do you go back? And I, I did like the play, the constant play, um, which I thought they actually didn't. I thought they could have ramped up a lot more the play around. How does he lose his eye? Yeah, because you knew that was coming in this film. Yeah. Um, and so I thought they actually underplayed that a little bit, but I did enjoy those kind of moments and that kind of waiting. And also seeing um, the other agents and the other characters. Is kind it Coulson? Yeah, Greg. Greg is, yeah, he's yeah. also de-aged. Not quite as successfully no. as Samuel L. Jackson. No. But so they've done a de-aging process that they did with Kurt Russell in the opening sequence of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, yeah. but here it's sustained for the whole film. Yeah. And what it reminded me most of is The Long Kiss Goodnight, which was that mm. mid-90s uh, Gene Davis movie, yes. where again, she's a, an amnesiac ass-kicker who teams up with Samuel L. Jackson before Samuel L. Jackson was perhaps coasting a little yeah. bit. And I feel like the for the first time in a long time, particularly in a Marvel movie, he has a character with an arc, oh, and yes. he, he seems to enjoy being there. He's worked with Brie Larson a lot, yep. and uh, I think they're, they're sort of their their kind of chemistry comes to the fore and it lifts the film. I yeah, I, I agree that you know that was my point of reference too because I've got a I know some people really hate that film but I love the Long Kiss Goodnight and the the great thing about that film is just that sense of Samuel L. Jackson not being the one in control and being the kind of dummy who has things happen to him all the time and that's that's what starts to play out in this Captain Marvel, that he's kind of the doofus. He's the one who isn't aware of what's going on. He's the one who's falling over. Mm. Uh, and the banter that starts to develop between those two main characters, it didn't feel like conventional you know, script writing by, by rote. It was, here's a couple of characters, let's bounce them off each other in this really entertaining way. And that was the other thing that really kept me going. I have to say as well, just his interactions with the cat or the <laughs> slogan. Yeah. Um, that. That's an amazing cat. 
<laughs> it is, it is. But also that, I guess that kind of characterization mm. where getting getting to see Nick Fury playing with a cat is it gave me immense pleasure. Yeah, I mean, it softened the character. I mean, he was the Dumbledore of the Marvel Universe. He would always turn up when uh, in the third act when needed. He always had the answer. And here, as you quite rightly point out, he's the audience analogue. He, yeah. He's what leads us into this world. And he's discovering for the first time there are aliens and there are people from outer space. Yeah. And, uh, and that kind of wide-eyed wonder, as long as, you know, it, it, it is kind of shared by the audience uh, and it kind of refreshes what is 21 films in, quite familiar. And what can you... You're... you're uh, the you know the smart person about you know sort of the the superhero stuff, like what are we looking at? Are they they radical changes from the way that Captain Marvel's been represented in the past with the way yeah. that's represented in the film, or is it still fairly faithful? No, it's it, uh, it's drawing on a recentish reboot of the character. So for the longest time, she was Miss Marvel, and she wore basically a bikini, yeah. like a one-piece. And about four or five years ago, a very good writer called Kelly Sue DeConnick uh, rebooted the character and finally gave her her promotion from Miss Marvel to Captain Marvel. And with that, they sort of positioned her purposefully as Marvel's answer to Wonder Woman. Because yeah. Marvel has always had female characters, but they've tended to be part of teams. Yeah. And X-Men, uh, Scarlett Johansson and the Avengers, yeah. and they needed a Wonder Woman. And so they've kind of quite consciously, with one eye towards movies in the comic books, kind of you know, peppered uh, this character across multiple comics as their answer to Wonder Woman and the movie seems to be replicating yeah. that. So it's very much a recent-ish interpretation of the character but faithful to that recent-ish interpretation of the yeah. character. I find it interesting um, you saying sort of that the idea of the, the Wonder Woman who's not part of a team because mm. the other thing that struck me about this film is it's the first time I've seen female friendship in Marvel films because you've had Black Widow and you've had... Um, Scarlet Witch mm. as these Avenger characters, but as very isolated figures. They don't really get along with other women. Mm. Um, but you have a genuine female friendship as a really sort of key part of this yeah. film, which yeah. was a nice change. Yeah, I think that, that was one of the reasons I wasn't that crazy about Wonder Woman in that, you know, there were certain sequences about it that were great. The stuff that I liked was the first 30 minutes, which was just Wonder Woman hanging out with all of the, mm. the other women on, was it Themyscira? Um, and then as soon as she had something to do, she gets a mission. It's like nothing but dudes. Yeah. Um, which is, you think she like, becomes Smurfette. Yeah. And like, yes. they're, and they're all like, you know, they were all yeah. Smurfette up until recently. So Scarlett Johansson was the only female Avenger. Yeah. And in the more recent movies, whether it's Black Panther and some of the women of Wakanda, or the fact that finally there's a second female Avenger with, yeah. uh, um, Scarlet Witches, I could get, yeah, Scarlet Witch. And uh, so you get a little bit, they're finally passing the Bechdel test. Yeah. Uh, yes. For the first time in, you know, you know about uh, a dozen or so movies. Yeah. Uh, but this film is kind of the, the purest realization of that, which of course then negates the need for a love interest or anything like that. And yeah. Lashana Lynch in a small role, but a very crucial role as her longstanding, you know, friend and yeah. they're voting the military together is, you know, super. Uh, powerful at the right moment yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think their relationship is one of the ones even though it's given much less screen time than the Fury one uh, that really carries the weight of the movie so I mean we should probably address you know the, the, the response to it has been as you were saying Chris and this idea yeah. that oh my god now we're flooded with the women's <laughs> um you did a little bit of reading on, on how people uh, responded to that. I, I was ready to throw my computer doing the reading um, in response to that. Um, the number of uh, kind of takes on um, this film where 
Captain Marvel is seen as, you know, the plot as being too thin or um, too indulgent and the need for her not to be too emotional. I think the reading of this film from a number of the male critics I've read compared to what I was kind of feeling in the cinema, um, you know, the response to uh, the motorbike uh, yes. rider who yes. asks, who tells her to smile and her, you know, just sort of basically flipping him off almost immediately um, was what sort of connected but seems to have been lost in a lot of the, yeah. oh, she's not as good as, which is yeah. always the, the first kind of response. Which is insane. And, you know, I, I really love that sequence. That mm. sequence with that, that motorbike is, is an incredible sequence. And one of the things that I did really appreciate about that was too often I think when, you, when you're playing the men are sexist and, you know, women are, are kind of you know, put in a really bad position, it tends to be really clownish. Like it's really over, like, hello, little lady, what are, you know, like that sort of stuff. Whereas that scene plays much more, it felt like more real. Like, you know, why aren't you being happy? You're a girl. You're supposed to be smiling for for my happiness. Um, and the way that that plays out, I think, is just a really, like, neat little way of, of putting a bow on, you know, the way that women are represented in society, but also in, in these um, in these films. Um, yeah, and I mean, the, uh, the film benefits from, I mean, the cool directors and yes. co-writers it's uh, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck who've done all of this sort of like Mississippi in, Grind yeah, Mississippi and Half Grind. Nelson and they're I mean you could hearing Anna Bowden talk on various podcasts about this uh, you know she describes how that's something that her male colleagues didn't realise is something that happened you know this idea you know uh, being told to smile but I thought what was even very successful was there's a mentor character in this uh, played by Jude Law and avoiding going into spoilerific territory but he acts as though he's Obi-Wan and yeah. every other mentor we've ever seen. But actually, as the film progresses, he's seen to be quite controlling. And what seemed to be like, you know, sage-like advice from the senior figure that she's quite a good relationship is actually, as the film progresses, going, he's a bit of a... Yeah. I don't know if I can say shit, but he's a bit of a I shit. I think you can say shit. You know, and you kind of realise... And nothing dramatically changes in his performance, but what does change is her self sense of independence and agency and self-awareness yeah, and you start to be like oh like he's been trying to keep her in a corner for a long time yeah. and uh, I think that's a very effective sort of critique of that kind of toxic masculinity and, and also just a kind of nice switch in terms of you know the way that we might perceive somebody like Jude Law and somebody like Ben Mendelsohn you know like we're used to seeing the full Mendo right yeah. that the full Mendo which is the over-the-top angry abusive sort of dude he actually is much more complex than that in this film, which is, again, one of those things yeah. where you go, they've got Mendo, we know what we're getting, and you're wrong, Mark, you idiot. I have to say, I really enjoyed Mendelssohn's performance yeah. in this film, um, particularly also getting to hear his um, Australian accent. <laughs> oh, yes. It, it, it's just such, <laughs> so pleasurable when you hear, um, particularly because he also puts on the American for a little bit to, um, in one of the roles he assumes, yeah. um, but then getting it to hear his actual sort mm. of accent coming through yeah, yeah. I mean, Ben Mendelsohn is a you know shape shifting alien is perfect, and then to use his Australian accent in his you know green scaly form, which then means all squirrels, all aliens are yeah. Australian. Yeah. Uh, yes. it, well, we've known that for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, and he's really good, and they've done that effectively a couple of times in the past, where Marvel will cast well known uh, actors for playing villains like. Uh, Ben Kingsley in Iron Man 3 and then you watch the movie and you go oh they've cast Ben Kingsley of course he's the the, 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 yeah. the uber villain and go well actually no he isn't and Mendelssohn in a very short space of time whether it's Star Wars or you know Robin Hood or Ready Player One has become the go-to villain and they're like there's something a bit more cleverer here yeah 
Yeah. Um, so I think that we're all pretty keen on this. And, you know, I, I think you guys were perhaps already in. I was not. <laughs> and I have been convinced uh, that it's actually a, a pretty tremendous film. So in terms of a, a big blockbuster film, like this is actually a really uh, fantastic uh, version of that, that sort of production. So if you want to add to this discussion of Captain Marvel, we'd love to hear from you. So just head to facebook.com slash cinema and you can leave a comment there on our episode thread. If Beale Street Could Talk is the latest film from director Barry Jenkins, his follow-up to the 2016 Oscar-winning Moonlight. Adapted from James Baldwin's 1974 novel of the same name, Beale Street follows the story of Tish Rivers, played by newcomer Kiki Lane, and Alonzo Fonny Hunt, played by Stephen James, as the young couple navigate the challenges of living and loving as African-Americans in New York in the early 1970s. Through a series of flashbacks, the story of Tish and Fonny's evolving relationship plays out against the backdrop of their current reality. Tish is pregnant while Fonny is incarcerated, sent to prison thanks to a false accusation and the actions of a vindictive cop menacingly played by Ed Screen. The film mixes the idealism and romance of the young couple with a social commentary on the oppression and crushing racism that shape their lives, marked most notably through the struggles of the young couple in renting a loft and the ease and regularity with which black men are imprisoned. Despite the harsh social theme, Jenkins' film is romantic, slow and almost woozy in style, breaking only occasionally from its dreamy vision of New York to include archival images of police brutality and oppression as a stark reminder that the lives of these young people and the challenges they face were far too common. As the film quotes from Baldwin's book, at its beginning, every black person in America was born on Beale Street. And this is very much the message of the film. So, Mark and Liam, what what was your take of this film? Oh, Lord, I loved this to bits. I really, I really loved this. Um, It is slow. And, you know, if I had a criticism, it felt there was a... a, Towards the latter section, I'm like, you know, I'm loving the slow, but we could pick it up just a little weeny bit. That's the only thing I've got to to criticise it for, I thought it looked incredible. Um, and I just I just liked hanging out with those families. Even the really terrible family, Fonny's family, are amazing. And I could have had another two hours just of them fighting mm. with each other. Uh, and, you know, th- there's no getting around the, the incredible cinematography, the really interesting uh, temporal shifts that go on, that, that it's kind of operating at two different time frames and you know sometimes that's something that can feel a little cheap and a little bit easy and this seemed to work just so beautifully i friggin loved it to bits liam yeah it's fantastic it's i mean you you stop short of saying masterpiece but probably is a masterpiece. yeah yeah it's, it's just it's knocking on the door yeah it's so uh kind of beautiful and kind of mesmeric and you watch it the whole time and there's these wonderful slow motion kind of close-ups of the of, of the cast and the characters and you could just look at it all day. Yeah. And, you know, reading some reviews, some people have compared it to a play in terms of its, you know, limited number of characters and lots of scenes are set in kind of, you know, apartments and smaller rooms. But it's it's not theatrical in how it's shot, the, the, the wonderful music. And it just really zones in on the, the mood, the atmosphere, the sense of optimism, yeah. that optimism crushed. 
optimism in terrible circumstances that if this was perhaps another movie set in another context would be this terrible oppression, but it's yeah. almost treated as sort of routine. Yes. And and the kind of uh, the, the kind of quiet heroism of all the characters to sort of band together and kind of persevere through that yeah. without the histrionics that you might see in a in a similarly, you know, uh, not guilty person being sent locked up behind bars. Yeah. A lot of the thing that things that that I was thinking about while I was watching it was, I mean, I really love Spike Lee. I really love Black Klansman. But Spike Lee will take a story and say, here it is foregrounded. I'm going to show you all of the things. Here, Here is the conflict. Here is the crisis. I'm presenting it to you. Be outraged because this is outrageous. And he's really good at almost sort of um, exposing and, and um, almost in a hyperbolic fashion, like, look at this terrible crisis. This film doesn't do that. As you say, it's kind of like like the banal racism. It's people sitting around tables drinking whiskey and having a chat. And in the background, absolute terror is going on, but they, they aren't responding to it the way that, say, Spike Lee would. Mm. Spike Lee would be saying, be outraged, be be shocked, you know, rise up, be militant. These, this film says, this is just part of the way that they live. And I think that has an equally impactful response. You mentioned the the fact that every now and again he'll just cut to some archival footage and you think, that's it, right? Mm. This is kind of placing this very somewhat, I don't want to say banal because that's not quite true, but this very simple crisis against these these wider, huger things that we almost recognise more as I see the image of racism Mm. and when you're in their world you don't actually, it's not as present until you think about it. And then you recognize it. I had, I mean, I still enjoyed this film, but I think I had um, a, a bit of a different response to both of you in that I found the romanticism of this film a little bit cloying and um, a, a little bit smoothing out some of the rough edges a bit too much. I thought it was such an idealized, even though there was that um, prejudice very much there, it smooths out a lot of. Um, the tension and this kind of idealised romantic vision of that period, um, I found it just a little bit too kind of cloying from, for, I guess, what I was um, expecting. Um, I think I should probably also qualify that um, I watched this plane first up on a... Uh, uh, watched this film first up on an aeroplane. Um, and so those slow motion mm, looks to yeah. camera that you were talking about happened again and again and again and um, to a point where I was sort of just getting frustrated by the very slow looking, um, which had a really powerful effect when it was used in Moonlight, Mm. but I felt was used so often in this film that um, it just kind of lost its power for me a little bit. Um, And then juxtaposed against the archival photos, um, it just kind of heightened just how dreamlike the depiction of the young couple's world was. Um, and I, I believe that the ending of this um, film doesn't mimic the ending of Baldwin's oh, book, really? okay. um, which includes um, Fonny's father being caught by his boss for stealing money mm-hmm. um, and committing suicide. Wow. And so while I understand why um, that scene was sort of left out, it wasn't quite the message that um, was sought in this film, I think it is also kind of telling that that, that the vision of this film is a much more kind of idealised um, version of this period than 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it allowed me to enjoy the family drama and and the family drama seemed to be, you know, issues with the in-laws, lack of money and stuff like that. And there was never at any point was there a character who was like super woke and said, well, the reason this isn't working for us is because of this and the man and everything else. But we could draw those connections Mm. for them. So therefore, I was totally swept up in what should have been this sort of like, you know, two more lovely people you would not meet and should have had a, a bliss free, you know, blissful life. Uh, other than, you know, dealing with in-laws and kind of, you know, normal stuff. But these larger uh, determinants were shaping their lives in ways that they never fully articulated, uh, but is often articulated in other movies. You know, Spike mm-hmm. Lee is a great example of that. And so I almost sort of appreciated Jenkins for not making those links explicit, but allowing us to make those links in a way the statistics are kind of worryingly familiar and by just getting to know this interesting family drama uh, may refreshed those and kind of remind us of the tremendous injustice mm-hmm. and I mean the fact that they just take those as kind of like you know as a received view like this is the way it has has to be or that doesn't even get questioned uh, I'm outraged on their behalf and I'm outraged yes. that they're not being outraged yes. I want someone to scream and yeah. yell and yes. say like clearly this you know he's an innocent man there's overwhelming evidence and there are there are a few moments of that but probably a lot happening in the head of the audience yeah I mean there was a lot you know, there's a little bit of a um, comparison that I was making with something like Call Me By Your Name where, you know, towards the end of that film where the, the kids is basically coming out saying that they've had a relationship with this dude and the father says all of the right things, right? The, the, the family treats him absolutely correctly. And it was, it reminded me, I was reminded of that when I looked at, um, you know, the scene where Tish does say, I'm pregnant. She's 19 years old. And that plays out. It, you know, sometimes you see sequences in films where you say, people need to watch this and actually just write the <laughs> script down because this is what you do. You know, you don't, you know, of course the both of the parents are shocked and they're initially a little bit taken aback by it. And then they're like, that's amazing. You're awesome. We're behind you. Break out the alcohol. Like, and and I found that incredibly moving, just the the idea of somebody... Um, being confronted with a, a problem that is normally responded to at least with a level of judgment and that this was all about acceptance. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that sort of taps into building up Tish's family at the very least as being this really rich, really supportive, really loving family. So, you know, that's part of why you're, so, at least why I was so on board mm. with everything that's happening to Tish um, because I want that girl to be yeah. happy. Um, and I have to say... Um Regina King's performance Ugh. was brilliant. And I agree that um, the family response um, and the way that, you know, they, they were clearly um, dealing with it, but put family first, which I think is very much part of what Jenkins is um, doing with this film. And he has talked about how he sees this as a companion piece to Moonlight that is very much about black love and black families and um, telling those stories. And that is a wonderful part of this film. And I have to say the other part of the film that I found incredibly moving, which connects back to what you were saying, Liam, about that understated leaving it for the audience Mm. to... um, was also when the... um, Daniel is retelling his experience of being Mm. in prison. um, And the way that that is... It it does feel very authentic in that. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's uh, Brian Tyler Henry, who, I mean, broke through in Atlanta and has been in kind of half a dozen films in the last year. And, I mean, the cast is really interesting because Regina King got the attention and the awards probably because she's the most famous person in the cast. But anyone in that cast could have been uh, singled out or collectively for, for so much praise. So... Regina King very much deserving of that recognition but I feel it's almost like recognition for a cast but the cast is largely made up of television actors or yeah. up and comers but uniformly they're just yeah. uh, but, but clearly Liam I mean if only they had you know, been driven around by a white man <laughs> um, they would have won all the Oscars oh, but they, they, they got it yeah. wrong didn't they they did this whole thing that was actually really good and really meaningful and they should have gone for driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> um, pity about that. The, the other thing that, that I just want to mention is, and we've already kind of alluded to it, but Jenkins's capacity to just shoot that face close up and just have them talk directly to the to the camera. Um, you know, it's something that, that other directors have done, Ozu most famously, but that sense of, at least for me, forging just a really intimate kind of relationship directly with me that when they're talking to each other, they're, they're looking at me, which is a, a kind of initially almost a little bit alarming. And then you sort of fall into the fact that you're being drawn into that, that narrative in this incredibly beautiful way. Loved it. Uh, the only other thing I would add is um, also the score on this oh, film. Yeah. Um, the music is almost a character. Yes. It's very evocative in how that um, it's used and touching on... Um, there's a number of moments where you watch them putting on a record and um, putting on a track and that having a real yeah. a real powerful kind of impact as well. And the cinematography, there's one sequence, oh, it's so beautiful where they're, and this is uh, before they go up to their loft where um, Fonny and uh, Tish are walking down the street mm. and he's got a red umbrella that's kind of just perfectly illuminated by the street lights. And they just walk down this fairly sort of subdued, lit um, uh, hall, uh, alleyway. And it's one of the most beautiful images in the film. It's just extraordinary. And it is there that you see the um, allusions to and the homage to uh, films like In the Mood for Love. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I also noticed the sort of use of the cigarette smoke throughout the film yeah. as well as these kind of little little moments. Yeah. It's a beautiful film. That's mm. very special. Right, so that if you want to uh, let us know what you thought of If Bill Street Could Talk, by all means, come to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition. So we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, 
click on our Patreon link and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Guillermo del Toro was born in Jalisco, Mexico in 1964, and by 2019 he has carved an indelible impression on the world of film. His output veers from artful plays on popular genre through to blockbuster special effects spectaculars. And when you consider his career moves from allegories of films such as Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone through to the action-centred projects that include things like two Hellboy films, the sequel to Blade, very intelligently called Blade 2, uh, and the Mika vs. Kaiju blockbuster Pacific Rim, it's clear he's a director of some considerable breadth. Yet I think it's fair to say, despite these widely varying audiences that he targets in his cinema, he does consistently return to really similar cinematic tropes, like things like the child or the ghost, uh, the gothic narrative or the fable, um, and a weird fascination for non-human, hybrid human creatures. His most critically lauded film, The Shape of Water, plays to many of these concerns in its examination of a mute woman who falls in love with a fish man. Del Toro's life and career has been beautifully explored in Gabriela Munoz's great director's piece in the latest issue of Senses of Cinema. All three of us went down the Del Toro rabbit hole, and I don't think he actually has a rabbit hole in any of his films, but he should. Um, revisiting many of his films. Kirsten, what's the thing that stands out the most to you when you sat down to climb into the world of Guillermo del Toro? Well, there are a number of things that um, struck me, but probably the thing that I noticed most watching a number of his films back to back was his love of doing these kind of wide shot tableau set kind of pieces where it's like he gets a little bit caught up in just how beautiful the set he's created is or the um, balance of the different characters. And he just he just wants to wait there for a little while while we all kind of enjoy along with him. Um, something that I noticed definitely happens in um, The Shape of Water, but also I recall from watching Hellboy, I remember that struck me the first time I watched those films as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was kind of thinking back to the first time I was aware of Del Toro. I'd seen Mimic in the... Uh, late 90s and I think probably VHS and just kind of dismissed it as one of those sort of low budget horror films but I became aware of him uh, with Blade 2 because Blade was a fairly serviceable action movie and then Blade 2 came out and it seemed to just kick into a new gear not necessarily that it was even a better film but just that it seemed to have come from a person uh, an individual voice there were the weird things like vampire ninjas uh, Ron Perlman was there and I went like you know so who has shaped this uh, franchise into something different and then of course uh, kind of like Tim Burton in a way he went on to make a series of comic book adaptations but having very little interest in either the source material or superheroes but he found ones that worked for him which was Hellboy and in particular Hellboy 2 and so that you know uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Hellboy Hellboy is a kind of a he's a boy from hell uh, brought up <laughs> uh, uh, to work for basically the equivalent of the, the CIA and it's just kind of like it's a monster movie but it's not a monster movie it's a superhero movie but it's much more playful and by the time he got to Hellboy 2 where he had that kind of you know uh, sort of the, the kudos and the, the trust of Universal uh, it's has only very loose links to something like Captain Marvel. It's you know it's Tolkien, it's C.S. Lewis, uh, these fantastically realized characters, uh, and you know a, a real singular voice. Yeah. And when that marries with good thematic content or halfway decent script, you get sometimes great work, and sometimes they're always pretty to look at at the very least. Yeah. 
those early films are, I think, particularly interesting. I mean, Mimic was the one that, as um, Gabby talks about in, in the article, that Mimic was the one where he goes off to Hollywood having had a couple of really decent successes um, from Mexico uh, and gets to do Mimic and it's the biggest disaster in the entire world. Um, you know, the Weinsteins are butchering everything. There's crisis on set. Everything falls apart. Um, sitting down to watch it, though, it, it was su- like a, such an interesting film. I, too, I reckon saw it on VHS back in the day. I remember thinking, like, that's kind of okay, but it's also like your your typical rubbish monster movie from the 90s, mm. which, you know, I, I love, but I didn't think of it as some great film. And it still isn't, I have to remind you. But there are these sequences in there that are really terrific. And you think, oh, this was the film that was going to be until Bob Weinstein comes in and starts slashing everything around. I do find that probably the last, I don't know, almost three quarters of an hour of that film, it's actually really strong and effectively kind of revolting and repulsive in, in all the right ways. Sort in of once movie. they descend into the Once tunnels. they get into the tunnels, it's yeah. really quite fantastic. I think the monster looks great for, you know, 90s technology. And so I was a little surprised that, that I enjoyed it as much as I did because it's still certainly a complete mess. But that's a film that you can see where his vision is going, which is kind of extraordinary that that still comes through after the Weinsteins hacked it to pieces. And I think particularly the treatment of the monsters in that first film, you see the evolution of his particular aesthetic of monsters. Mm. Um, You know, the thing that struck me and we were talking about a bit earlier was um, the comparison between um, the shape of water fish monster and the kind of facial shape of the bug men from Mimic. Um, There is a particular, and obviously it connects up to Hellboy as well, Mm. um, there is a particular aesthetic of monster that he's played with a number of different times. And so it's great to see that as early as as Mimic. I mean, once you start lining them up, you know, I mean, Abe Sapien Mm. in um, Hellboy is pretty much exactly the same as the the fish man, the asset uh, in Shape of Water. There's a lot of stuff with hands, like mm. spread hands, mm. and then that connects you to something like Pan's Labyrinth with the you know the hand with the eyes on it. Um, that that he's got a specific aesthetic that he just kind of keeps playing around with and working. I don't know what his thing is about fish and eggs and and eggs. You know, like sometimes they're and things. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he seems to really love that stuff, but. You know, there's something kind of grubby about him that that I find really pleasurable because he can take things that are really grubby and make them look really beautiful. Um, I watched, uh, in fact, watched rewatched uh, Devil's Backbone last night, um, and you know, Pan's Labyrinth is fantastic. I think maybe I love Devil's Backbone a little bit more. I really adore that film, uh, and that has this fantastic effect of it's a ghost story, and we know that he also loves the ghosts. Um, but the the ghost in that is a is a young child who has this constant trail of blood coming out of out of the wound in his head, and people walk through the the ghostly image and pick up the blood in their hands um, and kind of roll it around in their fingers. So there's almost like this tactility to mm. to his kind of monster work or his ghost mm. work, which I really love. Yeah, I rewatched uh, Crimson Peak last night, oh. and I think that's a really solid film because. 
you know, it's set largely in this sort of dilapidated uh, English mansion that is over these this kind of clay pit. So, and the clay is blood red, and it's seeping up from the the, the, the floor, and it comes through the walls. So it's very much the haunted mansion, and, and kind of on a you know explicitly so, and it's a wonderful aesthetic, but. Something that struck me, I uh, think, about what you just said, Mark. There's a line early on where Miwakowski's uh, wannabe writer says, uh, it's not a ghost story, it has ghosts in it. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, Del Toro, A, kind of managing the expectations of the audience yeah. for that movie, but yeah. his real, his whole career, yes. he does monster movies, but they're, they're movies with monsters in them, yeah. but they're not monster movies. There's very few jump scares. Very often we come to empathise with the monsters, yeah. the ghosts. Uh, the worst people are usually the humans. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's you know, quite explicit in something like The Shape of Water or is revealed over the course of the film in something like Crimson Peak. But he has a tremendous empathy with the monster and he, he wants to humanise the monster and, you know, and, and I, I, in his best work, you know, that comes true really strongly. Yeah. There's such a strong... Um, kind of the way that he sets up a lot of these narratives is finding the villain that is usually like the corporate flunky or the the oppressor, the the political oppressor, um, or the the person who is just purely corrupted by things like greed or kind of in Crimson Peak, uh, mm. a kind of desperate desire to control everything in their lives. Watching Devil's Backbone, you know, really, although there is a ghost who haunts this orphanage, what is essentially an orphanage, the true uh, monster is is this guy who is just after these gold bars and commits some of the worst atrocities, I think, almost in any of his films. It's really bloody. It's really nasty. Uh, but, you know, compared with, you know, the innocent child who is always or frequently a figure in that film. So you've got this kind of monstrous human and some level of pure, sweet innocence. It's that perfect melodrama of just getting the, the, the combating of terrible evil and pure and innocent decency coming together, uh, which, you know, he plays for that melodramatic mode and you are drawn in immediately because the the innocence of the characters that he focuses on is always so pure and so lovely and so beautiful. One of the reasons I think probably Sally Hawkins really works in The Shape of Water is that there's something... His innocent characters aren't dumb. They're not stupid. Mm. They're aware, but they're just really kind-hearted. And, you know, you naturally kind of fall towards those characters. But as well, where you find those innocent characters in his work, they're also often a victim of prejudice as well. So they're um, thinking about um, The Shape of Water, obviously got the character who is mute, um, but also thinking about Mimic and you've got the young boy who's um, autistic and the way in which these... the characters who are the most sort of innocent and good are also the ones that suffer in other ways throughout the film as well. So there's sort of an aligning between the innocent human characters and the innocence of the monsters, mm. the sort of the good side of the monsters that are um, that we're meant to kind of um, fall in love with or befriend throughout. Yeah, and I mean, it's this kind of idea of them being poorly understood or, or underestimated or, you know, uh, and, and that comes true with the, which, I mean, certainly uh, The Shape of Water is probably the, the purest distillation of that, where you have the mute character who could not possibly mastermind 
the uh, escape of the fishmen, so she's overlooked by Michael Shannon as the as the kind of terrible. I think is he an FBI agent or CIA? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and similarly, the fishmen. You know, no one can see the humanity in him but her. And I, I mean, that's Del Toro looking in spaces and in genres and in types of characters uh, for a kind of a degree of humanity that otherwise wouldn't be. Other directors wouldn't find that, yeah. and I, I think he brings that to you know from, from my perspective those comic book adaptations he did. Uh, his Hellboy is this kind of wonderfully warm, uh, misunderstood curmudgeon, and uh, you know, and it brought a kind of a levity to superhero movies in the early two thousands before the Marvel model, uh, and really kind of you know in a way was sort of a forerunner to that more empathetic, yeah. more complex, uh, and warmer character. Yeah. And I, I just appreciate the fact that there's a good, and maybe it's because, you know, well, we're all film nerds here and like film history, but there's that strong sense of him bringing a vast knowledge of film from around the world mm. to bear on the way that he makes sense of um, his own story. So you sit down and you watch The Shape of Water, but you can't watch that um, without recalling, you know, Creature from Black Lagoon, for example, um, Devil's Backbone spends a lot of time evoking the searches mm. of them kind of walking out of these darkened spaces and out into this kind of flat golden land. Um, you know, there's constantly that sense of him understanding what what film history is mm. and finding ways to play with it and spin it into his own tales. Um, even as something as far as Pacific Rim, to, yeah. to do your traditional, like, let's have a kaiju film. Sure, why not? And he's got that great kind of global view as well. I yeah. mean, uh, Pacific Rim, which many people probably say is one of his least successful films, uh, even the idea of bringing together elements of comic books and Asian pop culture yeah. and the kaiju monsters and putting it all together in this slightly kind of you know retro-futuristic aesthetic, uh, it just touches on all the things he's interested in and excited about and sometimes that coheres wonderfully yeah. and you get something like Pan's Labyrinth and sometimes you know the, all the pieces don't necessarily uh, quite line up yeah. in a fully satisfying way and we get Pacific Rim which is still a very serviceable action movie yeah. but lacks perhaps the thematic weight of some of his other, other films yeah He's also kind of obsessed with the same actors. And, and that's mm. always something that I like about somebody, like a director who says, these people are really great. We're just going to keep dragging them out. Doug Jones is in almost every single mm. film that he's ever in. Ron Perlman is almost in every single film. He just kind of brings these guys together. And they're not the people who you would think, like, I have, I've now got that great star, Doug Jones. He's done a truckload of stuff. He's currently on Star Trek, star Trek Discovery. Yeah. yeah. Um, so not exactly a recognisable face because he's always wearing a mask, mm. but, you know, he, he trots him out all the time and he's so great. But even thinking of using Ron Perlman back in the early 90s for Cronus yes. and then maintaining that affiliation and both their stars sort of ascended at the same time. Yeah. Not coincidentally because they were, you know, he would put Ron Perlman in Hellboy. Who would have thought to put Ron Perlman yeah. in Hellboy? You know, character actor, always played the heavy. And I mean, again, he's physically formidable, but there's this kind of warmth and empathy uh, that Ron Perlman brings that role. And only someone like Del Toro would have recognised that in, you know, the tough guy persona. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a, a quick overview of the career of Guillermo del Toro. And if you want to dive into that a little bit further, uh, have a look on Senses of Cinema for Gabby Munoz's uh, fantastic article in our Great Director section. Uh, she runs through his entire filmography and a little bit of biographical information as well. It's well worth chasing down and reading. Uh, and if you want to discuss del Toro, then come to our Facebook page at 
facebook.com slash sense of cinema and you can leave a comment there on our episode thread. Each month, your hosts here at the Sense of Cinema podcast share with you a highlight from the current month, whether it's a film, television show or some other kind of screen media that has caught our attention. We share with you the material that has resonated with us and we hope might resonate with you as well. Uh, There has been a lot going on over the last month in Melbourne and online, so I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about for the month of March. What caught your attention lately, Mark? Well, March was kind of the month is is it does it make it kind of gross and disgusting to say March was sort of Michael Jackson month? Because um, I did sit down and watch Leaving Neverland, uh, which is the documentary um, from Dan Reed. Oh boy! I mean, there's a lot to say about it, but it's almost the stuff beyond the the documentary itself that I was really fascinated by. I mean, I'm sure people have heard of it. You know, it is the investigation with a couple of the. Uh, a, children who have accused Michael Jackson um, of sexual assault. Um, what Just watching that, I was really confronted by how explicit they went in terms of exactly what Jackson did to them, how he persuaded them to um, engage in these activities, more kind of horrifyingly, how he wooed and seduced the parents to allow them to have, to, to permit him to sleep with their children in his bed when he's you know 45 and the kid is 11 uh, and the parents consistently seem to say well it all seemed fine they just kind of hung out and played on a playstation so we thought it was cool um him sleeping in a bed you know my child sleeping in a bed with a 45 year old man kind of is a thing that's okay and so the the way that that uh, television uh, documentary it played on television here, um, and I know did uh, didn't it play theatrically at a festival? Was it Sundance or something? Do you remember? No, it did play at, at one of the festivals. Um, the, the the way that that pedophilia starts to um, destroy those families as people start saying there's something wrong. I should do something about this. I'm kind of attracted to the lifestyle that I live. Having Michael Jackson as my friend, you know, there's literally moments where Jackson goes and hangs out in kind of very mundane domestic spaces with families. They're like, wow, he's in my shitty suburb eating my shitty food. He must be amazing. He wasn't. He was this terrible, terrible monster. Uh, And so the the impact that that has had, not just on these um, children, who of course are now adults, but on particularly the mothers who are interviewed in this uh, this documentary, is just really powerful and really interesting. Not just an analysis of um, kind of pedophilia and, and the awful crimes that he committed, but on the power of celebrity and what that can convince people to do. Found it really compelling and really horrifying. And now I guess we have to decide, you know, in a world of cancel culture, do we cancel Michael Jackson and we no longer listen to him? Do we freak out when we hear him? You know, in a store or something, belting out Billie Jean, Ugh, it's going to be hard to listen to his stuff after watching that documentary. Did either of you get to see it? No? I, I saw it on Gogglebox. You know, the oh, right. people... <laughs> where, where all the best analysis happens. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you get the audience watching the show. Yes. And, I mean, obviously, it's like little snippets. Yes. Uh, but just, again, you, what I like about Gogglebox is just having the audience kind of 
do what you've just described, yes. processing. Yeah. I like Michael Jackson. He's yeah. a star. Okay, how do I reconcile Michael Jackson the star and you know something that I might have as a ringtone or on my playlist or whatever else with clearly this terrible, terrible manipulative yeah. monster? And is it possible to reconcile those two? Probably not. Uh, yeah. Not in any comfortable way. Yeah. And just seeing the different different responses and uh, and, and, and you know, Cockerbox is great because it kind of it magnifies. Uh, what works about a particular show or not. And so just even seeing it through, you know, the the little snippets that they can show on Gogglebox because they couldn't go into the really graphic stuff. uh, I was like, okay, I I, I feel like I want to watch it because I want to be informed but at the same time, it seems like a slog. Yeah, I mean, I did find it one of those things where you say, I am going to do this, I will sit down and do it and you do come out of it wanting a shower. Um, it's, It's... hard a lot of the stuff is really hard certainly the discussion of the sexual stuff is hard the stuff that i found more heartbreaking was at the point where all is revealed the absolute guilt of these mothers who have been blind to it even though people are saying what are you doing with your kid they were just blind to it they were seduced by michael jackson as well and they went along with everything that they believed about michael jackson and now they basically handed over their child to a pedophile and now they have to live with it and the consequences of that. It's heartbreaking. I'm interested, Mark, did you watch it on television when I it was did. broadcast? Yeah. It was, was that across two nights? Two nights, yeah. How was it going back for the second night? I mean, it, it was one of those things where you say, well, I sort of committed to the first half and, like, I know how it turns out. We know that he dies. but um, So it wasn't like spoiler territory, but it was like I've, I've got to see how they handle the the knowledge of what they had done because a lot of that first episode is setting up we were really seduced by him he flew us around these great places he hung out in our house I cooked him macaroni and cheese he was just like one of us and knowing that of course they're going to get to the point where they're like oh yeah and he was having sex with my you know nine year old child like I wanted to know how they coped with that and the answer for what it's worth is they didn't um, families are torn apart. Mothers don't speak to sons. You know, terrible destruction. So it's not just these two kids um, who were abused. It's clearly the entire family. Brothers and sisters. Ugh. Hard stuff. Anyway. Liam, so that was cheery. Has somebody got, like, a hilarious comedy to recommend somewhere? I suppose I do, because it's, it's March, so it's the month of St. Patrick's Day, and it would be remiss of me not to point to <laughs> something Irish. Uh, so I'll point to Dairy Girls, which has dropped on Netflix here in Australia and around the world in the last two months. Uh, it is a Northern Ireland uh, comedy uh, set in the mid-90s during the Troubles, uh, the sectarian violence that took place there, and it's focusing on four girls and their English cousin who can't go to the boys' school because of his English accent, he'll get beaten up, so he has to go to the girls' school. So there's, uh, they're five teenagers and uh, they just get into various misadventures with boys, with drinking, with their parents. And against the backdrop of the Troubles, it's kind of refreshing to see uh, that conflict that you know was certainly in the background when I was growing up, uh, not... Like again, you know, in a weird way, kind of like Beale Street, it forms the texture of the stories, but it's never the focus of the stories. The sort of the uh, like when there's a bomb scare, it's a nuisance because you can't get to the shops. Uh, when you want to uh, go to take that concert, as the the most recent episode was about, uh, and you're 
bag full of vodka gets picked up by the uh, the teacher. You have to pretend it's not yours, and then of course everyone assumes it's a bomb, and they have to call in a bomb threat. So you know, it's that kind of uh, it, it's that kind of uh, it's kind of like the in betweeners in that they're kind of coarse and they're funny, and they get into various misadventures. Uh, but every now and then, it stops to remind you about where they are, and, and there's a certain amount of pathos that comes with that that probably doesn't happen in in, in similar shows. So the first season is on Netflix around the world now. The second season is midway through airing on Channel 4 in the UK. So presumably in a matter of months, it'll end up on Netflix. It's a really funny show. Great cast. I would say impenetrable accents for some. Uh, but the more you listen to it, the, the more you pick up on what they're, what, what, what they're saying. Uh, and just a really kind of sweet, funny, very uh, risky times comedy. Uh, and well worth a watch. Fantastic. Terry girls. Right. Kristen, what did you get to? Um, I'm also going to try and keep this a little bit lighter after... Um, Me the making everybody miserable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I recently saw a uh, French film which uh, was um, premiered at Cannes last year, but it's finally made its way out to, first of all, the French Film Festival here and now into the cinemas, which is The Trouble With You. Um, on Liberté uh, in French, um, directed by Pierre Salvadori. Um, this is a farce action kind of comedy drama um, film, all of the fun elements thrown in, so it's a bit of a wild and fun ride. Um, it follows the story of L- Lieutenant Yvonne Santi, um, played by Adele uh, Haynel. Um, she has recently lost her husband, who was the star local cop, Um, has a young son who she tells stories to about the heroic way in which um, his father died. Um, But as the story unfolds, she discovers he was actually a very corrupt cop um, and had sent an innocent man to jail to cover up one of his own crimes. Um, This man is released from prison shortly after she discovers his identity um, and proceeds to act up in a number of very violent and very bad ways. Um, but because she feels responsible for him, she kind of follows him around and makes everything okay to the point where they end up stealing a Ferrari together and um, getting into all kinds of trouble. Um, and so it's this kind of wild ride as she tries to reconcile the new world that she lives in where she realises she's benefited a lot from um, police corruption, um, trying to make things right with Um, the person she sees to have suffered the most because of her um, husband's actions, but also start off a new relationship with another um, police officer in her department. Um, And it leads to some very sort of absurdist um, moments, some wonderful action sequences, um, a raid of a dominatrix sex club that provides the costumes for a later bank robbery. (laughs) Liam and I nod approvingly. (laughs) Um, So it it was a great kind of fun... Um, light-hearted kind of film to to enjoy and laugh along with. That sounds fantastic. So, you know, if you're not keen on the pedophile documentary, <laughs> <laughs> there's two happier options yeah. to make uh, the, the remainder of March a little happier for you. All right. So I guess we've come to the end of our show. Um, thanks for joining us again this month um, for the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks, of course, to startlingly amazing new co-host Kirsten Stevens. Well done. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and thanks to Liam Burke, who is always amazing and always incredible. Thanks for having me. 
Um, and thanks to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who, like Captain Marvel, as he's editing our podcast, his hands burst into flames while he's turning us all into kind of geniuses uh, on social media. If you want to chase us down, I might have mentioned this once already, uh, we're at facebook.com slash cinema. Or you can follow Senses on Twitter uh, for details, which is just at Senses of Cinema. Uh, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we will speak with you again next month. Bye.